Episode 368, The Rant. Tom Rodkamp, head coach, boys varsity basketball team at East Meadow High School, Nassau County local b-ball fiend. If there was a fancy word to describe Coach Rodkamp when it comes to basketball, it's omnipresent. In this pod, we decompress the season that was for his Jets of East Meadow, his come up of falling in love with sports, his relationship with referees, and now he will build upon the success of last season. All that and more, my conversation with Coach Rodkamp, now. Welcome to another edition of The Rant. I'm your host, Ralph the Ref. I'm with a super special guest, head coach of East Meadow Varsity Basketball. Um, not too far from my house. Also, the girls are boys tennis varsity coach yes. at East Meadow. That's yes. really awesome. I want to get into that, too. Okay. Uh, but Mr. Coach Tom Rockcamp, how are you, my friend? Good, Ralph. Thanks for coming by. Yeah, man. I, listen, I've, I've always uh, admired um, your visibility. Every time I go to a game, I feel like you're just omnipresent in all of these games. And you know, we're taping this on, what is it, March 8th? I feel like you've been at the AA games. You've been at my Mercy game the other day. And yeah. you just seem like a staple um, in bat. You're a junkie, I, I would say. Would you would you characterize I yourself do. as I a love junkie? high school basketball. I do. It's, it's really cool. So, you know, I'm just very thankful. I don't even know how we started, like, getting cool. Was it just because you just kept seeing me ref everywhere? <laughs> Probably, yeah. 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 And then uh, summer league games, too, so... It's a little easier to, to chat while the game's going on during a summer league game. Yes, yeah. it is. So, it is. It's, yeah. And it's very, it was really a pleasure to get to know you. And I, I think I just have, you know, deep admiration for the things that you've been doing at the East Meadow team, um, especially since, uh, you know, in terms of some of the kids ended up going to different schools. And, you know, that's the thing. You just have to try to have the continuity, especially when you're building upon a program of just trying to figure that out. And, you know, I think you have different advantages and disadvantages when it comes from where I'm coming from as a coach in the Catholic league, where we kind of pool from different towns and, you know, you're relegated to the town that you're in. Um, I just want to just highlight the things that you went through this season, uh, the 22, 23 season. I know I had you early on um, in November and it's, it seems like such a, it feels like a hundred games ago for me. Right. And we were at Oyster Bay and I remember that game only specifically because they had, they had one of these kids, he hit four threes, I think. You were down by a lot in the wow. first quarter. And yeah. 
I think you were flummoxed because, you know, this is the beginning of the season. You didn't think that it was going to go this way. And then you kind of turned it around. Do you remember what that game was like? Yeah. Do you remember how we turned it around? Um, you tell me. I want to hear from your perspective. Well, we had an interesting mix this, this year. We had six seniors and six sophomores. And uh, I was shocked. And I think the players were shocked, too, that they were struggling. Although Oyster Bay came out and just, they, they hit a bunch of shots. Yes. Maybe four threes in a row. Yeah. And so it happens. We just didn't expect it to happen in the first game. Mm. And so to start the second quarter, I put five sophomores on the floor. Mm. And I think they won that quarter 19 to three. I didn't even realize that they were all sophomores. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Which, of course, gave me an interesting uh, decision to make at halftime because now I have 10 kids looking at me, five seniors and five sophomores, and thinking, all right, which way is he going to go with this? Yeah. I mean, because really, at 19 to 3, wouldn't you keep the sophomores in? But uh, as I build this program, the, the, all the kids know I'm very loyal to seniors. Mm. And I looked at the seniors and said, what are we going to do? And they said, don't worry. More or less apologize, we can do it. And and they did. I put them back in, and the sophomores understood. And uh, we had a nice uh, understanding between uh, those all those kids this year. I think that's a good push-pull strategy to have, especially when you have, you know, things aren't going right. Yeah. You put in a new look. Yeah. That becomes successful. And I just think those experiences are going to pay dividends for those sophomores. But I even want to go back to earlier in the summer where – you ended up playing at Kozenek, which I think is probably the best summer league that a high school varsity boys basketball team can be in. Mm -hmm. I know you played with Dee Simone, who's a stud at Clark, and he ended right. up being, I think, all Long Island or whatever, all conference. Yeah. What was that experience like? And just talk about what you think that did in terms of preparing the kids to just, I guess, play at a high level, play different uh, teams that were not necessarily in their conference, but just getting good competition, good reps in the summer where, you know, sometimes kids have disparate plans other than, you know, they might have baseball, they might have lacrosse, they might have different commitments in terms of their family, but you know, they were able to at least get reps. What was that like for them? Was that something that really deeply prepared them for the year? Yeah, my seniors really wanted to have a successful season. They love basketball. They've been all about it for, for eight years playing CYO together. Uh, and my pitch to them was we have to play outdoors. And I know teams come from all over to play in that summer league uh, with Coach Burton over there in Baldwin. And it was about being mentally tougher. So in other words, hey, it might rain one day and we, we might sit there for an hour and not know if we're going to play or not. Okay. Or maybe you're not going to get calls or maybe you're going to fall on the pavement and, and go home with a bloody arm. Mm -hmm. We just wanted it to be adverse consistently and for us to just keep playing. Mm. And it worked out. Interesting. Yeah. So I guess going into that situation, you still have a lull because that was, you know, late July, August. Yes. Then you have September, October where what are you doing to prepare for the season? Because I'm certain that some of the kids are playing football. Some of the kids are playing soccer. We do. We do have at East Meadow guys that play a lot of different sports. Uh, and again, they wanted to play CYO, uh, which was okay because the chemistry building is good. They're still playing together. Um, but it, it removes me from the process mm. because there's a dad who's been doing that for a number of years and, and it, it, it was what it was. So my only problem was a lot of the competition was weak. So I feel like when we started this season, we had to kind of erase what was on the blackboard and then input new, stronger habits. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Well, that makes sense. And yeah. just talking about moving forward from that Oyster Bay game, talk about just how your season ended up going. <laughs> the uh, The preseason was not good. Uh, we lost games where we had a significant, we had double digit half, uh, 
halftime leads and we blew games uh, to Great Neck South by a bucket, uh, Plainview by a bucket, and uh, somehow it came together somewhere between the uh, Christmas New Year's break. Now, do you do you can you pinpoint a specific thing that happened, an action that happened? Uh, it it was going to happen, but then we did get a boost when uh, Munir Ibrahim transferred back. He had gone away to prep school, didn't like it, and then uh, came through all the proper channels with our athletic department, uh, got enough practices and added him as our primary ball handler. So he helped tremendously. He's a confident kid. But also uh, just through the practices every day with myself and my assistants, getting my guys to, to toughen up and to and to hit the checkpoints on on contesting shots, boxing out, rebounding, all the things they needed to do, which were not really coming from where they came from in September and October. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Now, I know that the Coast Next situation paid dividends, Munir coming back towards the season. Right. And then just that experience with the sophomores. How much emphasis in terms of a coach, and I'm curious myself, how much emphasis do you put on, I guess, the mental aspect in terms of, as as opposed to, I guess, the physical, the execution part of it? Because I think everyone can play, but it's more impressive when they can execute it in the moment when things are getting tough. Is that an emphasis for you in terms of just being more mental tenacity in during the season? It, it is. So that we could probably talk about this for an hour and, and other coaches could as well. How do you get that mental toughness? How do you get that grit and determination? Uh, we had great practices because, again, our six sophomores, I mean, let's face it, who brings up six sophomores to varsity? Maybe two or three. But these kids were talented and they had great chemistry. They played well together. So they were challenging kids two years older, we had great practices as we got deeper into the season. If we scrimmaged in practice, the scrimmages were going overtime. Mm. And and guys were, were fighting physically, which I had to break up, but I kind of didn't mind. So uh, we thought the mental toughness was coming as they got used to the repetitions, the offensive sets, the defensive requirements. And uh, it, it built kind of organically. Mm. And that's always a great thing when you build that type of grit and determination organically. Now, that also segued towards the end of your season where you ended up beating, at the end, um, all intents and purposes, the Nassau champion AA Baldwin team yeah. and Coach Burton and all those guys. Yeah. What was that game like? Because that, that kind of sent shockwaves in the referee community like, wow, East Meadow has is, is, is got something brewing over there. Uh, if you're kind of a young guy, but uh, I grew up watching Coach Wooden at UCLA, and I was always amazed at the, the difference between his approach in a game and the coaches today. Because every coach today is standing on the sidelines, whether it's high school or college, and they're screaming direction and instruction and encouragement. And Coach Wooden sat there with a rolled up parchment and just watched his guys play. How And they were successful. Two reasons. Well, he had great talent, way more so than anybody else at the time, but also his practice preparation led him to the point where he said, I don't have to coach these guys in the game. They're, they're ready. I just have to go let them play. So I'm kind of thinking about that. And, and our, our preparation kept getting better and better. And so you arrive uh, on a day, like, you know, it's a special day for the guys, it's the last game of the season. And let's face it, Baldwin circled on their, on their calendar and they were undefeated in, in Nassau. They had only lost to Cardozo. And I watched from the opening tip, the first few possessions, and I wouldn't say I sat down, Ralph, <laughs> to, to, too excited to sit, but I had to let it roll, and it rolled, and, and they just played. Mm. And, and they, you know, East Meadow had a great day, and, and Baldwin might have had an off day. 
Well, nonetheless, I mean, you, you can only play the game that's in front of you. Yeah. And, you know, as some, yeah. everyone's entitled to have a good game. Everyone's entitled to have a bad game. And, you know, I know that you built in terms of confidence. I'm sure that did pay dividends, especially for the sophomores. And, of course, the seniors rolling into the playoffs now, going into the playoffs. Yeah. What was your mindset after that high? Oh, we thought we would win, of course, uh, but we also knew that uh, Hempstead is a unique environment. I mean, the, the gym, the high ceilings, you know, it seems cavernous, like it's a bigger- Feels drab there. Court yes. than most, even though it's the same length. Uh, and we also warned the boys about the uh, the walls. I said, you're going to look up the walls and see all of the championships, mm. you know, counties, Long Island, states, and, and those players are not going to be there. We're going to play the guys in front of you. And we did. And the first first quarter was great. Uh, second quarter, we were a little fatigued. And then the third quarter was great. And then the fourth quarter, you know, what's, what do they say in the NBA? It's a, you make shots or miss shots. Mm -hmm. They made some shots. We missed our shots and, and we went home. So we were very disappointed. And, and the kids always have said since that day, well, if we had them at home, we would have won, which is, you know, wishful thinking. Yeah. But uh, it, was, it was fun. I think it was a good experience, right? Yeah, yeah. I'll say that when I watched the, so I was supposed to have Hempstead for whatever reason, I wasn't able to do the game, but that kid, Ja'Kai uh, Stith, I was very impressed by his yeah. feel for the game yeah. because he seemed like he knew, he knew to pick and choose when he could be aggressive, when not to be aggressive. Yeah. And the fact that he was not really in foul trouble based on the, the, the quality of the risk that he was taking, I, I was certain that he was going to get into foul trouble, but he just has like a, a, a very, Nice knack of figuring it out. He's a football kid, right? I believe he's a very good football player. I didn't see him play football. Uh, it's a basketball family. And with all the games I saw, I thought he was the best player I saw in Nassau County. I, I, I would yeah. have to agree with that. Yeah. I, I think yeah. when they did play Baldwin at Hofstra, I just think that they weren't hitting shots that he normally does. Yes. And I'm not sure if he was aggressive in certain spots than he should have. Hey, Baldwin did a nice job on him defensively. There you go. Yeah. There you go. And I will say that Coach Burton is, is a master at adjusting at halftime. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I, I would still hold your hat high, your head high, in terms of your season this year. What do you think you learned about yourself during this, this whole run? Do you, and, and just talk about if you learned anything about yourself as a coach. Yeah, well, I'm happy at how I was able to, to meld different personalities together. You know, we have a very diverse team, uh, and these kids all ended up loving each other, and, and, and that was a high level of competition and practice every day. They were going at it, and yet at the end of the day, they were still going out socially as a group. Mm. So that, that was pretty cool. Uh, I, I just want to keep going to clinics and, and watching film and uh, getting better, especially at offensive sets. I want our guys to be able to score easier. Now, do you think that the uh, sophomores that are going to be juniors now, do you think they'll have a different type of confidence going into the season next year? Yeah, definitely a different group. Uh, they, they have a nice chemistry already. Let's, mm. let's see if they can build upon that. They're playing AAU together already now. Mm. Yeah. Now, do you think, so Baldwin's going to be playing in the Long Island Championship in a couple of days. Do you think that they're going to uh, uh, be successful Absolutely. in moving forward? Absolutely. They're, they're <laughs> going to represent Nassau quite well. Yeah. Don't I, worry. They got it. I hope so. I hope so. But, you know, I've always wanted to speak to somebody like you because, you know, I'm, I'm just, it's just so interesting for me because I have such a unique perspective of refing because I'm also a coach. Yeah. So I think for me, it's a unique advantage because I think sometimes when somebody does your game, they go, okay, I've East Meadow. Rock camp's annoying. He, 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 he likes to yell at coaches. Maybe it's because they don't know how to speak to you. But what I think is 
you've been preparing for a team probably for hours on end. You sure. probably watch film. Sure. And I take that into account. When things don't go well, I understand that doesn't negate the fact that you worked to try to prepare for this team. Whereas somebody as another ref who doesn't coach the way I coach, right. they think of it as just another game on their schedule. Um, what's your what's your perspective of referees? I, I think I've heard you allude to this on previous podcasts. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, here, here's the thing regarding that. So coaches are two to three hours every day, six days a week. What, what are we doing? Four and a half, five months? Yep. Okay. And our perspective is that a referee has another job during the day and, and yes. he's going to come and do the game. And so he didn't prepare necessarily for that evening like we did. Correct. So what's what's the solution to have perhaps the guys in your profession? I'm sure most of them do understand that and they do appreciate that. But uh, yeah, where's where does a guy come in on your side and say, this guy can't yell something or can't, did, did, did they get the, you talk to your friends. Yeah. Um, did they get the level of commitment that we have? And it goes beyond the winning and losing, although mm-hmm. we're all competitive and we're all trying mm-hmm. to win that night. Mm-hmm. Okay. But we get protective because these are teenagers and they're like our kids. And if, you know, one of my players all of a sudden has three quick fouls, I'm not even yelling so much that the call is wrong. I'm kind of yelling like, hey, wait a second. This kid's a senior. This is a big game. Are we sure? Mm. Uh, a lot of times that's my questions, refs. Are we sure? <laughs> I mean, they can't take it back, but I want to know. Right, right. Well, I'll say that I think you have to figure out where somebody is in their referee timeline. And we talked about this off air of, sure. you know, there's varsity refs, there's lower level refs, there's recreation refs. And, you know, we kind of melded in the pot and, you know, we talked about this before as well. A new, a person that's young could be the veteran and the older person could be the novice. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard to understand what that is because we don't look at it like that. Because if I watch five people playing on a team, I can tell who's been putting in work. I can tell somebody yeah. who's not in shape. Yeah, You can't really tell that with referees and where they are in skill level until you kind of see the totality of a game. But what I will say is that I think people can get a better understanding if First and foremost, you have to master refing. You have to master high school refing. Yeah. You have to master college refing if you want to go that route. Mm-hmm. You have to master the pros if that's what you choose to do. Now, if you don't master that, then we can't move on to the next step because there's another step in that, and that's the game within the game. Right. And what I mean by that is if you have a five-star recruit and Mike Krzyzewski, Jimmy, Jim Beheim, all the blue bloods of coaches are in the stands, I got to know mentally – Number 35 is getting recruited. I can't give him two fouls today. Yeah. I can't. Yeah. Because if I just look at it black and white, then nothing is going to go well, right? right. I'm not going to do well. Right. You're not going to do well. Right. And you're, everyone, everyone's just going to come from a place of being upset. So I just think that dynamic. And then also, once you pass mastering refing, you have to realize that you're always working with somebody else. And I, I think that's the unique part of refing. Like, you're always with the same team. And you might be playing in different places and, and you're, you're playing different players. But for me, I'm always having a new experience, especially me with the added bonus of doing different sports. I do girls basketball, which is a completely different world. Of course. Right? So going back and forth, it's a, it's a thrill to me to just try to figure out all of those things. But if you haven't mastered the refing part, it's really hard to learn how to do the game within the game. But what I do think is that I think we have to do a better job of not communicating with coaches um, during the game, which I think is, is, is necessary, 
but I think we have to do a better job of communicating what a coach is thinking and how a ref is thinking. And I think once we have a better, and I, I think that's why I personally encourage to have these conversations, to have these relationships, because it's not schmoozing. I'm being myself, right. but I want to understand how you think so I can better serve you in the game, right? Because the refing part will take care of itself. I already know right. that I got that down, right. but I need to know what the dynamic is for you and what the threshold is for you so you can be successful. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. Now, are you suggesting that this is going to come about through your podcast? Oh, I don't, I don't know. Maybe. Or, or, or with coaching and uh, referee meetings, you know, but if you had 50 coaches and 50 refs, that's, that's not going to, it's too many people. Right, right. You're talking about one-on-one, three-on-three, you know, I, it's a great idea. I don't know how you're going to get that done. Well, listen, I'll, I'll say this. I think if you, if I plant the seed of somebody like you, I think at least at the very least I can change your perspective of how referees and now you can meet them halfway because not every night you're going to get somebody that's mastered refing. Not every day you're going to meet somebody that is good at conversing during the game in the heat of a battle. So, you know, just like I said before, sometimes you have to adjust how refs are because the refs is how they are and you you're the way you are. But, you know, if you know you're not going to get an advantage in terms of like the refing part, you might have to have a different avenue in order for you to be successful that night. You are right. And the tricky part with this sport, you know, in football, if there's a problem, well, it's a 15-yard penalty, but the guy doesn't come out of the game. Yeah. Okay? You know, uh, maybe hockey puts you in the penalty box for two minutes. Okay? But here, if all of a sudden a kid gets two or three quick fouls, your inclination is to protect him and, and take him out, and he's missing a bunch of time. It happened in, in the uh, the Nassau Finals with, with Port and Baldwin. They hit mm. both had two, two significant players out a lot of time in the first half right. and everybody's saying, Oh, we wish these kids were in the game. Mm. Yeah. And, and it's, I think it just trickles down because now the coaches have to adjust, even though it's kind of in a fair level playing field because both of them are out. But at the same time, just me as a spectator and, and trust when, when I'm not refing, I'm not, I'm not judging the, re I'm watching the game. I don't care about any of that, but just for entertainment purposes, I don't want the best players to be out. Of course, not. Nobody wants that. Right. Right. Um, okay. So, I just want to talk about you being a junkie. I'm looking at your at your place and I see all of these basketball memories that you have. And, I, you know, just from my conversations with you, you must have been a junkie somewhere along the line. And having said that, where did you grow up? What did you play growing up? What did you play in middle school, high school and college? Uh, I played St. Rayfield CYO in East Meadow and, and did not go to East Meadow High School. Mm. Uh, played at St. Pius in Uniondale back in the 70s when there was 14 Catholic high schools here on Long Island. Now there's seven. But uh, if if you are aware of that, you know, St. Agnes and St. Anthony's, I mean, St. Anthony's, I believe, was a state champion in, in 75 with all five starters going D1. Wow. And Tommy Hicks was player of the year in the state of New York. So that's, that's the part of the tradition I wanted to be part of. And so that's why I went there. Uh, but then when I came to East Meadow to interview for the job, and I said, listen, I've lived here all my life. I just didn't go to school here, but, mm. I, but I want to bring a, a county championship to East Meadow. I, th I think that they appreciated that. That's, that's really cool. Um, just talking about, um, you know, going to Catholic school, what, what went into that decision? Because that happened to me. I got forced to go to Calum. I would have went to Uniondale, but my parents like through the back door ended up making me go to a school in Uniondale, but not Uniondale. Well, again, as a, as a Catholic school kid uh, in East Meadow, you know, most of us went to Holy Trinity. So I had my dad drive me over. We watched a couple of varsity games and I said, oh no, I won't make this team. Mm. So uh, St. Pius was close down the road in Uniondale and I figured I could play there. Interesting. Yeah. Now, did you play any other sports while you were in high school? Uh, baseball also. 
That's that's interesting you say that because those are completely different, especially in terms of refing. Um, what did you like more at the time? Uh, I was always a basketball guy. Interesting. Yeah. Did you end up playing in college? I did not. Uh, I'm sure you were still playing though, right? Yeah, I probably played until I started breaking bones when I was around 40 years old. <laughs> so you were playing until you were 40? Yeah, yeah. Um, now, after you were done with college, when did you start getting the inclination of coaching? Uh, my son turned about 10 years old. He started to get into it. I started coaching him. And then uh, it, I realized in the first year or two of coaching him in fourth and fifth grade that this was really, yeah, it grabs you. Interesting. And so uh, I, I was looking through the one ads in Newsday because they still did that back in the day. And uh, Ron Alfieri needed a coach at St. John the Baptist. And I, I worked with Ron for two years, great experience. And uh, I learned a lot. Interesting. Yeah. So, so interesting that yeah. you just hear people's backgrounds. Yeah. And that was a pretty far drive for you, right? <laughs> I, I didn't mind it. I accepted it as part of a, a great learning experience. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I had about, I want to say 15 games there this year. Okay. I was there quite a while. Yeah. Quite a while. It's always interesting too, because all of those kids, right? Like the athletic directors, I think in the beginning, they're like, aren't you the coach of the volleyball team? Yeah. And then, cause I, I, I'm not that person when I go ref. Right. Then when I'm coaching, I got yeah. just different, different. thing. Yeah. Um, with all of your experience, when did you want to take it to the next level though? Because I think in the beginning, right, you have just aspirations to coach your son and, and bring him along, but that bug hits you that you want to get better that you want to learn more, that you want to be great at this? Well, well, again, as a Catholic school player, and then when I said, all right, you know, for my son's sake, I want to learn how to be a better coach. And when the opportunity came up to be a varsity assistant coach after doing fourth grade CYO, mm. <laughs> I mean, I jumped on it. But Ralph, when, when you're an assistant coach and Holy Trinity is playing St. John the Baptist, <laughs> yeah, you're, you're in. They, they got you. Right. It is so much fun. It is so, so intense. It's so great. You, you just aspire to keep doing it. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Um, in terms of learning, uh, because as much as success that I've had as a coach, I still try to keep myself in a beginner's mindset and a growth mindset at the same time. Mm -hmm. And it's very difficult because I, I always feel, and I always use the analogy of Abraham Lincoln. If you learn about Abraham Lincoln in fourth grade, and if you learn about him in eighth grade, chances are you kind of know a lot about Abraham Lincoln. But then when you read a biography, you learn a lot. Sure. But then you start learning about, you know, Abraham Lincoln and being depressed or Abraham Lincoln in the Civil War, where if I start reading those books and I already have a deep knowledge of Abraham Lincoln, I might come away with one or two things and you don't really learn as much because you already have that baseline. What do, what do you do in terms of just trying to learn things and trying to just get other things from the pro level, from the college level, from different sports maybe? What are your different techniques of, of trying to improve as a coach? You're talking about Zen mind, beginner's mind, Ralph. You cannot put more water in the glass if it's already full. Mm. So you have to be open-minded and you have to grow with the students. The, the boys that I'm coaching today are not the same as the boys I was coaching 20 years ago. Mm. Society is different. So you have to be culturally aware of what's going on so you can help these kids as they need to be helped now because it's more than just winning a game. It's more than X's and O's, offense and defense. You're preparing these young men. You're a vital part. These, are, these guys look up to you because this is what they want. They want to be great basketball players. Mm. Not so sure they want to be great biologists or great mathematicians, but they come to you 
and, and you find out when they graduate how, how vital you were to them. Yeah, and, and you never think about it in real time, right? Because it's just you're, you're so deeply entrenched in the process. And well, We have a practice plan, and it has nothing to do necessarily with growing this young man as a young man because mm. we, we need to learn how to box out. But when you go home, you realize with the personalities you're putting together, there's so much going on behind the scenes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. Yeah. Now- you, you just really touched upon something that, that's very interesting where you said that, you know, the kids that you coached 20 years ago and even 10 years ago and even five years ago, I feel like the athlete has evolved into something different. Mm-hmm. Society has definitely changed. Right. And, you know, it, it, it's not like overtly said, but those changes are subtle. Yes. But sometimes they're often dramatic yeah. when you look back uh, in time. Um, I know for me, I've always coached girls. I never wanted to be on News 12 for the wrong reasons. Right. And I'm always very aware with that, especially as I ref girls, I coach girls, and I have a daughter myself. Um, how do you think somebody can get attuned to that part of it in terms of knowing what the zeitgeist is in terms of society, in terms of what's going on culturally, and how do you imbue that? And like, Because that's not something that you not necessarily say out loud, but you can see that things often change during time. I think uh, when your friends or coaches... Uh, you tend to talk about it behind the scenes. Like, what's what's going on? How, mm. how are these guys changed? And, and we try to piece it together, especially in the off-season. Yeah, I, and I think it's just, it's a hard balance because, yeah. you know, sometimes you'll you'll hear somebody get into a situation and you're like, wow, that wouldn't have been an issue 20 years ago. And then you kind of just like store that in your memory bank and say like, okay, that's not appropriate anymore. Whatever it is, there's whatever a, it is. There's a... Besides your podcast, which I love, love to listen to, there's something called Coaching You with Brendan Sir. Okay. Okay. And he does a great job of bringing college coaches on once a week. And then he has uh, forums where they're you know, at a conference and then he put, posts the whole thing. And these guys are very open and honest about what it's like coaching the modern collegiate athlete. Mm. And you can learn a lot from that too. Okay. Oh, yeah. Duly noted, man. Yeah. And I'm happy I'm in that same category. <laughs> yeah, you are. And I'll give you one more too. Uh, Brett Ledbetter has something called What Drives Winning. Mm-hmm. And that delves into the whole uh, concept that character drives winning. And he interviews college coaches as well from all sports, not just basketball. Yeah. And I think that's good to have that well-rounded um, yeah. different perspective. So if you want to be a good coach, I think you really need to put in the work. Yeah. Yes. You, you definitely, like yes. I said, you have to master knowing how to, yes. the sport yes. in and of itself. Right. But then you have to go around the edges because that's, there's people out there working. I mean, there's, there's people that are just constantly thinking, constantly reading. Do you read any books that have led you to this path as well? I'm reading a Feinstein book right now about uh, Duke, North Carolina and North Carolina State, the, uh, the Legends Club. Oh, Shashevsky, Dean Smith, and Jimmy Valvano. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great stuff. You know what? I just watched, I rewatched the, uh, you remember that Survive It Advance that came out 10 years ago? Yeah, about Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, great stuff. I think it's so amazing how he was so emotionally in tuned. Yes. And intuitively he knew what to do. And he did all of these wildly, wildly uh, innovative things like fouling people at the end of the game so they can go on the free throw line. Right. Well, it wasn't a bonus at the time. Right. Yeah. So late in the game, everything was one-on-one. And, and yeah, and, yeah. and that's even another thing where the rule changes. Sometimes people are so not into the rule being changed, right. but they don't think about the advantages of like unintended consequences that can happen with that. Like yes. obviously Dean Smith, when he, when there was no shot clock yes. and he would bring it to five and then the one-on-one thing that you were talking about with right. Valvano. Right. And then I'm sure that the three-pointer opened up Pandora's box of 
different types of strategies. Yeah. And they had to move that back. Initially, three-point line in college was really too close. I think it was inside the top of the key. Right. Yeah. Right. It's so interesting. Um, now, March Madness is upon us and basketball season's over. That whole lull, so you have, you know, the national championship coming up. What happens to you once that ends? Because I know you love basketball <laughs> and I feel like you die hard because there's nothing else to watch. Well, you know, I go from high school to uh, being immersed in college for a few weeks and then uh, then we'll go to the NBA eventually. Mm. NBA is very cool right now because yeah. there's a whole lot of uh, different teams and different players that have moved on to different teams. So it's interesting now. But, you know, what I what I don't like about refing all this time is that I don't get a chance to watch the college. So I always feel like I'm behind the eight ball when the yeah. when March Madness is coming. Oh. I don't even dare put in a pool because yeah. I have literally, I have no idea what's going on. Yeah. But Alabama's at the top right now. There's there's five teams looking at one seeds. North Carolina is not no, doing too well? No, no, Because they were in the national championship last year. Yes, and they were the preseason number one, but they might not make the tournament unless they can beat Boston College. Tonight. Oh, they need to do that. They need to do that. I, I refed uh, R.J. Davis when he was in high school and okay. then also Adrian Griffin, who's in the NBA now, okay. the Hawks. And I knew they were special. You know how I knew they were special? They had a run. I was at Mount St. Michael. They were playing at Stepanak. Now, I was scared to death. This is like one of my first big games. Right. I remember they were going back and forth. When they scored after a made basket, all, my indication that I knew this was like not normal was the shot clock was at 32 the next made basket was 31. The next made basket was 29 seconds. Next made basket was 32 seconds. Then they finally called the timeout. I'm like, this is not normal. This is not normal. If I ever go back to Long Island, it's not going to be as fast as this. Right. right? So right. that's the kind of like my superpower that I was able to experience that. Yeah. Um, you mentioned Coach Alferi at St. John the Baptist and that experience. Just talk about any other mentors that have helped you along the way. And um, what kind of advice would you give somebody after you trying to become a coach like you um, to help them put their best foot forward? My, my greatest mentor was my high school baseball coach because uh, in my junior year of starting in center field, I started the season over 17. And when I grounded out on that 17th at bat, he put his arm around me. He goes, you're still our number three hitter. You're the best hitter here. Mm. And I went home that night thinking, of course, this man is crazy. Uh, but I ended up being a Catholic League All-Star just because he believed in me. He never wavered. He showed me that confidence. And mm. so I... I've kept that with me for 45 years and that's really what I'm looking to do. I think there's a difference between inspiration and motivation. You know, you really have to be self-motivated if you're a young man to, to get up and go to school and go to practice every day. But I am definitely looking to inspire you to, to be the best you can be. Mm. Yeah. Anybody else that you think of besides your baseball coach, as well as coach Alfieri? Hey, listen, I had a great seven years before I came to East Meadow at Calhoun with Jay Kreitzberger. Uh, so, Jay's very structured in practice. Mm. I learned a lot from him. And uh, I also learned that, you know, you have to coach in public school. Like you said before, Catholic schools can get kids from everywhere. But we have to coach the kids in the neighborhood. And so this year we may have talent and height, and next year we may not. And, and how are we going to get it done? So I learned a lot there with Jay. Now, what kind of advice would you give somebody after you if they uh, aspired to be a head coach of a, of a high school program or even in college? What, what kind of advice would you give them? Uh, I think you have to love the game and the kids to the point where you would do it, even if you didn't get paid. Mm. Okay. That's really good advice because yeah. I know I started off as a volunteer and then, you know, it kind of segues. And yeah. I think, I think also the most important thing that I would say as a coach is that you can't expect success or learning everything you need to know in one year. It's kind of like one thing where it's like dribs and drabs, you know, and sometimes you might move 2% forward. Yeah. 
then you might one year you might be 30% forward, right. but you can't expect every year to be super, you know, leaps and bounds. Sometimes it's very small, mm -hmm. but at the, at the very least, if you're growing and you still have a beginner's mindset, I think you can, you know, the totality of the time that you're in there, you end up becoming a great coach just by yeah. virtue of just being there, yes. right? That durability. Yes. Um, I know we have a unique uh, relationship and I think I feel like I have a unique relationship with everybody in the basketball community or in the sports community in general because of just my position as a coach, as my position as a referee. But, you know, aside from that, and I know you're friendly with other refs, but what is your perception just overall in general of referees? And you could be real. <laughs> Wait a second. <laughs> this is not going to help me. Well, let's just let, let's try to just say it in a way even, where PG thirteen. I say, look, I love all of these guys; they're all terrific. Okay. So I'm getting you in trouble here. <laughs> well, I, don't, I don't know. It's a fun question, but I hadn't considered it. You know, listen, it's, it's like anything else. There's, there's some guys very good, some guys, uh, you know, working hard. Okay, you know, we'll, we'll I, just we'll just leave it at that. Well, I'll you, tell you. Uh, you you recognize the people that work hard. I'll say that. Right. And I recognize I don't win and lose games based on, on what those guys are doing. Okay. So it would be safe to say that you would never consider officiating yourself, right? No, I mean, maybe some guys can do both. I think it's, I think it's very hard because I used to coach at Kellenberg, okay. the basketball team. Right. And I felt like it, it just wasn't me. I felt like I was yelling too much. I just felt like there was so many variables that I couldn't control. Right. It just wasn't for me. So I feel like in terms of like refing basketball, I just feel like it's better suited for me yeah. because I'm not as emotional. Now, volleyballs are just a different sport. Yes. There's not the adversarial feeling that you have with referees the way you do with basketball. There's just not that banter the same way. Well, volleyball is no hand-to-hand -hand combat. Yeah, everybody's on their own side of the net. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I always perceived that refereeing was a job completely different than coaching. Yes, and again, we, we may meet each other on a Friday night when I'm coaching a game, you're refing my game, but most of my work is done in practice in the four days leading up to that. Yeah, yeah and I agree. And, and like I said, I, I implore referees to just at the very least empathetically understand that when you're playing Port Washington, you have prepared for them for four hours. So when it's, when it's a timeout and you're getting outraged, I always consider like you've been working hard and- and you know, it's not going your way right now. And I understand, I understand. I'm not going to bang you because of that. Here's a question I would ask referees. Are, are you in that profession the same reason I'm in my profession? Because I just told you, mm. I, and please don't let my athletic director hear this, but I would do this without <laughs> getting paid. Don't worry, you're not gonna lose your paycheck, I don't think. Okay, and so, <laughs> I, but I understand most referees, are, are they doing it for love of refereeing? That might be a stretch. I mean, it's a, it's a good job, and a lot of guys work hard to become really good refs. Yes. But it's really, isn't your base motivation, it's a, it's a job you're looking to get paid for? Well, yeah, I, I think you'd always wanna get compensated for some, doing something well, and sure. I'll just say this. I think there's a, there's a difference between a rec ref and a high-level high school ref, sure. or, or just even just a, a varsity ref in general, right? But right. in order for you to deserve that game, you have to get you have to have been good at some point. You've had to get to that point, right? One of your most recent part, podcasts, you had Marty, and I heard in his voice that he just loves being part of that oh, scene and, and of that game, and he strives to be a great ref. Okay. You, you got me. He's, he's got me. I know he's not doing it necessarily for the money. Right. He's doing it because he wants to give back to the game. Right? Don't yeah. you love that? Yeah, yeah. I do. I yeah. do. I do. And this is what I'll say too. 
if, and we just break it down in terms of just money. Now we're talking money, right? If you do a CYO game, it's $60, right? Mm -hmm. Some people are reluctant to do a varsity game because if you do a seven o'clock game, that's going to knock you out during the week for a six o'clock CYO game. And those CYO games become a six o'clock, a 7.15 and 8.30. If I'm doing a seven o'clock game, I'm not going to get that money. But what I contend, what I tell people that wouldn't you rather work a little bit harder and get a little bit better at it so you can make $130 for one game uh -huh. instead of doing $60 games three times? I just think for me, sure. in terms of financially speaking, it's probably a better deal if you just get better. But like I said, some people don't think that way. And I think that's what I think is the, the frustrating thing for a coach because you don't know necessarily by watching somebody ref because also you're not a ref yourself. So it's, it's hard to discern what somebody's motivation is. As, as a very fine high school ref, you are giving back to the community as much as I am. Now, my community is smaller. It's East Meadow, per se. Right. Okay. And maybe Nassau County in a larger sense or Long Island in a larger sense. And, and you guys may coach any place in Nassau. But look at it. You're, that's, a, that's a life purpose. You're giving back to the, to the community by making that game better, mm. uh, fairer. Yes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and also, like, trust, it's not a desirable job. There's so many experiments that I do. I'll go to McDonald's in East Meadow, right. and I'll see a 22-year-old kid. And you see that he's not really into the job. Now, I'll say, McDonald's to me, bar none, is one of the most difficult jobs. They have an app. Somebody's in the drive-thru. They have to speak and communicate with somebody professionally. Yeah. They have to handle money. Right. They have to press the point of sale system. They have to get the food ready and all that. Mm -hmm. There's probably so many lifelong skills that you can learn just by efficiency, right. leadership, yeah. management style, working with people, yeah. working in adverse situations of customers. Yes. I think that's a difficult job, right? Right. Now, when I say, what if I told, how much, how much money are you making, kid? They'll go, I'm making $16, $17 an hour, which is probably a lot of money for them. But what if I told you that I can get you a job right here, right? That you get paid $40 minimum, right? And within this, this two-mile radius, there's St. Rayfields, there's Woodland, High, Woodland Elementary, Woodland Middle School, there's Kellenberg, there's East Meadow High School. There's probably 10 gyms that I can rattle off within the two-mile radius where you could probably make money refing. Yeah. I don't want to do that. Right. They get yelled at. <laughs> I don't want to do that. Or it's too hard. So I'm thinking to them, and, and this is like from years of me experimenting, like, okay, that didn't work. Okay, so what they normally tell me is, um, I don't know anything about refing. I'm like, you knew something about McDonald's? Yeah. Like you knew about the point of sale system? Right. You knew about the drive-through? Because that sounds way more complicated right. to me for less money than refing. So I just, I, I don't know what the, I don't know what the algorithm is to, to tell a kid. Like it's a, it's a lot of good money. And you're still involved with the game, especially like if a kid loves the game. Everyone is always forcing to try to get a scholarship, D3, D2, D1, where it's like, you could be a broadcaster, you could be a statistician, yes. you could be a trainer, yes. you could be a referee. Yeah. Right? It's just opening up another avenue of the game that you love. What am I missing? Do you think I'm missing something no, in, like my, in my idea. pitch? I like this idea that you're out there <laughs> trying to recruit young talent. Always trying to recruit. Yeah. I'm always trying to recruit, but I, I just don't know what it is because I'll tell somebody to watch my game and then Coach Rotkamp is losing his hair. And then I'm like, what do you think? I'm not getting yelled at like that. <laughs> so it's, it's just, it's, it's a real hard, it's, it's a hard sell. I'll just say it's a hard sell. I'm sure. But I think coaching is as hard, if not harder. 
these days it is. They're also looking for good coaches. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I think they're both uh, worthy avenues just because, you know, I, I, I'm fortunate enough to see I'm at the point where, you know, some of my kids, they already have five kids of themselves and they're to the point where I'm about to coach the kids kids that I coached. Yes. Which is amazing. I yes. find that amazing yes. that I've gotten to that point where I've been there long enough to see them have kids and them old enough for those kids to, for me to coach. That's, yes. I find that amazing. And, and it's so rewarding to, to just see that. But I feel like we can do that with refing too. And, and you know that. I think there's not only a shortage, yeah. I think some people are long in the tooth. And I, th- I just think we people, we, they could just get younger. And I don't know. You tell me when you, when you have something in the suggestion box that we can figure out how we can get younger and, and, and better at that. Because, you know, I, I hear you. I know exactly what you're talking about. And like I said, I'm unique because I understand how a coach thinks. Yeah. And it's, I am only a one person that we can probably speak to your team and talk about how referees think. But I feel like if there was like, you know, a good solid slew of us. Yes. I think we can change everything, I think. Yeah. But maybe I'm being too ambitious. I don't know. No, I don't think you are. And a game would, would flow nicely, especially if, uh, if the young players knew that you guys are going to make mistakes. And yeah. It's all part of the flow. But I will so say, even though, albeit slow, there is a good crop of guys. I mean, you mentioned Steve McDade and, and myself, and I know there's Jared. There's a whole bunch of us that are coming up. So, right. you know, we're, we're right there. We're right there, but there's still people that are ahead of us. And, and I get it. There's, there's seniority involved, but mm-hmm. I'm definitely knocking on the door. I know that. I'm, I'm knocking <laughs> on the door. I'm definitely knocking on the girl's side. So that's good for me. But um, other than that, in terms of coaching, what do you think is the most thickest situation that you've experienced as a coach, whether it be the assistant or at East Meadow currently? Well, I'm sorry, say it again. What, what do you think is the most thickiest situation that you've ever been in? Thickest? Stickiest. Like, Stick- oh, yeah, stickiest. yeah. Maybe some kid got four fouls. Some kid got suspended. Some kid left. Some, maybe something with you. Well, let's look at this year. I think early on, a sticky situation was the psychology of some of the players. When you have a lead and it starts to evaporate, and again, we've talked about it prior to the game, the ref is going to make a mistake here or there. The crowd may, at an away game, may may jeer at you in a way that may distract you. Mm -hmm. You may go cold and miss a few shots. So it was sticky for me, and we lost a few of these games where they just kind of lost the edge and that confidence needed to hang on, take a hit, and and maintain the victory. Mm-hmm. So there's a psychological piece there. And I think that uh, if we look again at the larger uh, community of basketball, what take a player like Ben Simmons, for example. What is he represented to the to the young players these days? So when he missed that layup that time, or he wouldn't take the layup, and now he seems reluctant to shoot. Just reluctant to play basketball now. Yeah. Now, I have to go home and wonder, is that affecting my kids? Mm. I'm wondering because they, they seem to lose all their energy late in the game. Interesting. Yeah. Well, we talked about mental stamina. I know you're going to run away with that. Yeah. Because that, that's a thing. Yeah. You know, I just think, especially when you're in that situation, I think when you have like a significant lead, which ends up being hurtful for you when you're in that, in the thick of it, especially when the lead is slowly dissipating, Yeah. right? 17 lead turns into 12, yeah. start having that doubt, starts the fourth quarter. Right. Now they hit two shots in a row. Now they're down by seven. Crowd's going crazy. Right. You're still up by seven points though. 
Seven points is a significant lead. No matter how the beats of the game is, a seven-point lead is something that you can't do with one field goal. So so here's what I'm telling the kids. Now there's there's three minutes left, and now we're up seven instead of 17. And I call a timeout, and I say, okay, if I told you before we got on the bus that we were going to be at Plainview up seven with three minutes to go, would that be okay? <laughs> and they're like, yeah, that'd be great. That's I'm like, well, that's where one. we're at. That's a good one. That's where we're at. And, and Ralph, it's not just high school where you see this this year. I mean, look at uh, Alabama and Auburn a few nights ago. Mm-hmm. Same things. I think 17 was the margin, and they came back and won the game. Yeah. What happened to Auburn? Oh, it's not like Bruce doesn't know what he's doing, Bruce Pearl. Right. Okay. And you can see him beside himself. It's just like the sand is coming through the glass, and he can't stop it. Mm. That's interesting. Um, You know, momentum is a, even albeit intangible, it's definitely a tangible feeling. Yeah. When when it's not going, especially in volleyball. I mean, volleyball can can really turn on a dime. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But it's a little different because there's no time. It's first to 25. Sure. So it's much different in terms of mistake making because if you make a mistake, it's a point. Yeah. And I think that's the different dynamic in basketball where it's like turnover, then shot. It feels like it's compounded yes. in a different way. Yeah. And, and points in my sport is one point. It's not two points. Yeah. It's not three points. Yeah. It's not three points and then a free throw with the crowd going wild and time enough for them to be the presentation. <laughs> so- you know, I, I find that interesting. Um, yeah, I, I, I just always find that's a good way to look at in terms of, and I'm going to use, I'm going to steal that this year. Sure. But, um, you know, playing to win instead of playing to not lose. I think that's that's a tough thing, yeah. especially when at the high school level, when, you know, a team has a big disparity and then it gets dissipated yeah. quickly. Interesting. Um, having said that, what do you think is uh, your best moment thus far as a coach of all the things that that you've done? integrating this this team this year and I, and I don't mean that in terms of uh, uh, background uh, where the boys uh, come from uh, I mean their personalities and the psychology mm. uh, as you know these days when a young man is pretty talented he's thinking about playing at the next level and so then there's this selfishness component that sometimes rears its head. Mm. So you're trying to get everybody to play together, find the open man, and all of a sudden there's a bad shot. Why? Because we think it's a comfortable lead up 10 with four minutes to play, and I've only scored eight points. I need to score double digits. You have to constantly coach through this these days. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I, yeah. I think like the athlete is is much different in, in that in terms especially in basketball. I feel like they're aware. Yeah. of their stats in real time yeah. and how it's perceived for the future. And then, you know, you have all of these small snippets of, of clips, whereas like kid will be going crazy. But meanwhile, like, wait a minute, I ref that game. They lost by 40 points. Yeah. What is that? What's the value? <laughs> so, so my uh, solution, I uh, hope it's a solution uh, for this would be to, to remind the boys in practice, listen, you can get yours, but if we're, 10 and 10, nobody's going to care. I said, if you win, people will come to find out why are they winning? If you were 16 and four, people will come and say, oh, those four guys only average 10 points, but look at the talent, look at the resilience. This is why this team is successful because these guys are really good. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's probably the best way to put it, but you, you have, you have some good dialogue when it comes to kids. I, I'm, I'm really enjoying what I'm hearing. Um, so the next couple of months, you're going to be immersed in the tennis world. What's that going to look like for you? Is that a good break or a good break from monogamy of 
of doing basketball? That's me trying to help out East Meadow High School. Good, I, good. Again, not enough coaches go around, so I'm always available to help out, and, and, and that's, that's why I do it. And again, these are great kids, completely different mm. student athletes than the basketball guys. Again, they don't cross the net. It's not hand-to-hand combat. Right. But they do need to have mental toughness. Yeah, um, yeah. I think it's, I, I call it isolated boxing because it's very similar to that. And yeah. I think just, um, I think it's the best sport for me. I love watching the majors. I love watching oh, women's yeah. tennis, men's tennis. Yeah. It is to me, it's the most amazing, especially like when you watch somebody like Nadal when he's not hurt. Oh. Federer was my absolute favorite because he has the most feathery touch. Yes. Um, but what I do respect, I don't really like him as a, as a player, but I mean, how could you not respect Novak Djokovic? He's like Terminator T2000. He does not get killed. I mean, you have to literally kill him. Like you have to kill him in order for you to win. Like, or maybe he doesn't take a vaccine and he can't go to Australia. But other than that, the guy is yes. just like, in terms of when we're talking about that mental stamina, he has it yes. in spades because yes. it does not matter if he's down two sets right. and he's match point, he's still going to keep going. And, and I respect that. Yeah. Um, you know, moving past that tennis season, um, what's, what is the next couple of months uh, looking like in terms of East Meadow and you coaching um, to get prepared for the next 23, 24 season? We, we start to bring in the eighth graders uh, in the spring and the summer because they will be freshmen in September and try to acclimate them to the whole scene moving from middle school across town to high school. Mm. So we do talk about grades and about punctuality and attendance and do's and don'ts at the high school level, as well as the basketball. We put them on a court a couple nights a week and try to get them rolling with the kids who will be sophomores next year. It's program building. And then for our guys who will be returning varsity players, a lot of them have trainers. They play together AAU. So that, that's fine. They're, they're playing ball. So uh, we just want them to get stronger, bigger and stronger. So uh, we're in touch with them as far as conditioning goes. Okay. And listen, continued success with all of that in its continuity of of trying to build because you got it a very far point. And I think the bar is is set very high now and you're going to have to just keep keeping it rolling. Um, My final question to you, basketball has brought you to so many things. It even got you onto this podcast talking to a referee, a lowly referee (laughs) that used to be on the bench at Kellenberg playing basketball with his friends. Um, what does basketball mean to you? What is it given to you in your life? It's my primary interest. I, I love the the, uh, the geometrics of the game. You know, the court's a rectangle. There's little semicircles. You know, we talk in the, in the half-court circle before every practice mm. because we're all about inclusion. So everybody's equal in the circle. And uh, the kids get a chance to talk. They're mostly shy, especially when they first join the team. But eventually they get to express themselves for five minutes before we get to work and practice. So uh, it's, to me, it's the game of my life and and, and I love hoops. Yeah. Yeah. And and just know that referees love basketball just as much because I feel as though sometimes, and I'll give you an example. I was doing a rec game the other day and somebody was saying, I made a call and it it was a very easy call for me, but you know, these rec games when, when it's adult league, like they feel like the life is on the line. And they told me, you're only refing because it didn't work for you, work out for you in basketball. And I'm like, do you think out of this, like what I'm getting out of this is that I want to play you one-on-one? Yeah. That's what you think is I'm getting at? So just know that referees, baseline, they have to love this sport in order for them to even think about becoming a ref and get yelled at. Because as I said, it's not a desirable thing, but just know that referees probably like the sport that they're refing. That's all I want to say. Point well taken. <laughs> yeah. Any final words you want to say before we part ways? No, just thank you for having me and continued success with the podcast. Thank you, man. Appreciate all it. Right. For Coach Rodkamp, this is Ralph the Ref. This is The Ramp. We are signing out. Peace.